Welcome to the Dinner Party Download. This is your icebreaker. So here's a joke for you. What do you get when you cross an elephant with a rhino? Elephino. I'm Rico Galliano. I'm Brendan Francis Newman from APM American Public Media. This is the Dinner Party Download, Public Radio's arts and leisure section. Thanks for allowing us into your ears. Yes, we'll be careful in here. Mm. You just got a joke from writer Tanya James. That'll break the ice. Her new novel, The Tusk That Did the Damage, is out now. And later we'll speak with Ethan Hawke. A couple of weeks ago, he was up for a Best Actor Oscar. This week... He releases his debut as a documentary filmmaker. He's an overachiever. That's right. Like most of our guests this week. Also coming up, Andy Kabik of the band Vetiver DJs your dinner party. Actor David Duchovny explains why he put a cow in the desert. (laughs) And one of our favorite duos, the women behind the TV show Broad City, tell us about their favorite duos. Fun. But first, as at any dinner party, we start with small talk. All week long, you've been hearing these headlines. Oklahoma fraternity members chanting a racist song. Missouri's Ferguson Police Department says Chief Thomas Jackson is resigning. A jury deciding Robin Thicke's song did rip off the music of the late Marvin Gaye. Now for a story you might not have heard. We are speaking with our friend Sadie Stein. She is contributing editor at the literary magazine Paris Review. Sadie, what story are you going to be talking about this week? I wanted to talk about this artist who is typing the novel Lucky Jim. From first page to last, he is he is oh. recreating it. Oh, I've heard of this guy. Yeah, yeah. This artist Tim Yao has actually done over thirty novels, and what he does is finds the original model typewriter on which an author composed a novel and retypes it word for word on the same model. Yeah. Okay, so he's not a plagiarist. No. No, exactly. <laughs> he's, he's he's paying tribute to the text and engaging with the text directly by, by recreating aspects of the experience. I've actually seen this guy at work. He was typing Upton Sinclair's oil in a in a, a, a mansion that had been owned by an oil baron. And so what is what does he hope to find by doing this? You like, know, like like much art I don't think it's for us to say, or rather, it is for any one of us to say. Yeah, to me, to me, it's like showing, it's exposing the labor that it takes, in addition to the brain labor, the physical labor of just sitting alone at well, a typewriter. Well, exactly. I, I think you could say it. It's really the intersection of art and craft. So he's trying to get closer to the writing, or he's trying to get closer to the author, because. If he's trying to get closer to Kingsley Amos, he would have to drink a heck of a lot. <laughs> I think the average person would be incapacitated by the amount yeah. of alcohol. That that should be the next project, like that's actually right. trying to replicate oh, that, authors. Rico, there drinking. we go. Yeah. Yeah. Great idea. <laughs> drinking like authors. And that I would pay to watch. <laughs> Coming 2016, Sadie Stein, thanks so much for the small talk. Thank you for having me. And now let's start the project with a cocktail. <laughs> Once again, we tell you something that happened this week in history, then have a bartender capture its essence in the form of a cocktail. It's our rarely imitated history lesson with booze. First, the history part right around this time back in 1964, pirates set sail from the United Kingdom. And not the kind with peg legs and eye patches. No. Michelle Philippi tells the tale. In the mid-60s, British pop was a worldwide sensation. But you wouldn't have known from listening to British radio... See, back then, there were just three UK stations, all run by the BBC, which spun a mere six hours of pop records per week. That's because, A, the BBC was kind of square, and B, because the Musicians' Union wanted to promote live performances, 
they wouldn't let the Beeb play much recorded music at all. UK kids had to tune in staticky signals from Luxembourg to get their rock fix. Enter indie music producer Ronan O'Rahilly. He'd pressed a record by a pop singer named Georgie Fame, but he couldn't get it played on the few BBC shows that did spin rock. So in March 64, he bought a ferry boat, sent it out into international waters, and from it broadcast his own station, Radio Caroline. In just a few years, 10 other boat-based pirate stations floated onto Britain's airwaves, spinning top 40 rock for an audience of up to 20 million Britons. It wasn't easy. DJs spun during ocean gales, trying to keep their phonograph needles from skidding across the records. In the winter, they'd bring supplies on board and couldn't come ashore for weeks at a time. But when they did, fans greeted them as heroes. Here's news. Starting in September, the BBC begins a new service for fans of popular music. In 1967, Parliament banned the pirate stations. But the BBC had learned its lesson. Just a month later, they launched Radio One, an all-pop music channel. The first DJ on air was one of the stars of Radio Caroline. And good morning, everyone. Welcome to the exciting new sound of Radio One. So that was the history lesson. Now it's time to pair a drink with that history lesson. I'm speaking with Naomi Fletcher. She is a bartender at Hawksmoor's Seven Dials in London, obviously within range of these pirate ships that were broadcasting radio. Naomi, you've heard the history. What cocktail did it inspire you to make? Okay, so I thought as uh, Ronan O'Reilly, the founder of Radio Caroline, was Irish, that I would start with an Irish spirit. So I've used Redbreast whiskey. Which is a very nice Irish whiskey. Yes. So I took that and, and then thought I'd like to do something related to like sailors in olden times when they just had, you know, booze and lime juice. Prevent scurvy and filled with booze. Yeah, exactly. So I started with that and then I thought as a nod to the pirate thing, I would add in a little bit of overproof rum. Okay. Put in some lime juice, as you say, to fight the scurvy on the boat. Uh, 10 mils of ginger syrup. That's consistent with like pirates. I think pirates like ginger. Yeah. And also, you know, I was thinking, you know, let's break the rules. Let's mix some whiskey with some rum, you know. Um, I like it. You're a renegade. (laughs) You're like Ronan. Yeah, exactly. So uh, some fresh raspberries as well. Raspberries? Yeah. Where did that come from? Well, everybody likes a pink drink. Pirates don't drink pink drinks, (laughs) Naomi. Maybe they stole the raspberries from a more delicate boat. Maybe they did. (laughs) Yeah, maybe they did. But um, shake that and strain it into a highball glass with ice. And then for extra Irishness, I've added a Guinness float on top. And so what, what are you calling the drink? I'm calling it the Rolling Wave in honor of the first song that was played on Radio Caroline, which was the Rolling Stone song, I believe. So you, I'm guessing that you weren't around when this was happening. No, this was before my time. I do remember recording songs off the radio, to cassette tapes and things. Do you remember one of your favorite songs? Maybe we can go out on that song. I tell you what, I always like the Eurythmic. I approve of this choice. Pretty good song. She did well. Yeah. And Rico, I did some research. It turns out O'Reilly named Radio Caroline yes. after John F. Kennedy's daughter, mm-hmm. Caroline Kennedy. He saw a picture of her playing in the Oval Office while her dad was taking a meeting, oh. and he wanted the station to be like her, kind of a disruptor of serious society. Cool. So Caroline Kennedy is the first punk. 
<laughs> That's In right. Ar- that argument could be made. I'm making it. Uh, folks, you can play around on our website. All our cocktail recipes are there. It's dinnerpartydownload.org. So we've made small talk, had a drink. Now this party needs some music. And here with that is Andy Kabik, frontman of the wonderful folk pop band Vetiver. He's got a talent for writing great melodies, a sweet voice, and a huge vinyl collection. Nice. He actually moonlights as a DJ. Vetiver's new album, Complete Strangers, comes out this month, and here he is with a playlist. Hey there, I'm Andy Kabik from the band Vetiver. Here uh, begins my dinner party soundtrack. I am a person with a lot of records, collected vinyl all my life. It's very hard for me to not divert my attention to the music. So for a dinner party, I would have to choose something either not in English or instrumental. With that in mind, I would choose Antonio Carlos Jobim's The Red Blouse as a great dinner song. Antonio Carlos Jobim is a Brazilian legend, and it's a magnificent bossa nova tune. It's long and luscious and has beautiful string arrangements and seems like a good conduit to ideas and conversation. I think it's um, Jobim's biggest selling record. So this is a record I'd see all the time, but I wasn't sure whether it was worth picking up. Then I found a really nice copy and it just sounded unbelievable so now it's a mainstay i listen to it all the time i think it's this is one of those albums i would describe as sounding expensive at this point in the party everyone's comfortable happy to be there nibbling on cheese looking good maybe complimenting a tire the song is called the red blouse so this would be perfect for that and this could be simmering in the background along with whatever's about to be eaten My next track, I would keep it Brazilian, and I would choose a song by Gal Costa called Ara. A favorite song of mine. I would DJ this out all the time. I believe it's co-written by Caetano Veloso and Joao Donato. So that's a ripe pairing and great songwriting team. Nighttime is, ha- is around us at this point for the dinner, and this taps into that feeling. It's playful, beautiful arrangements. It's a song that if you pay attention to it, you'll be stunned at the chord changes and how it moves along. There's a funny moment in this song where it sounds as if she's saying vetiver. She says, ver de ver de ver, or something. This happens many times in the song, and every time I think, I kind of uh, self-delusionally think she's talking about my band, but it's not really happening. Well, maybe at this point, you're realizing what a special night this is, what great friends you have, how you're all lucky to be here sharing this night together. So for my next track, I would choose a very special song by the Penguin Cafe Orchestra called Ecstasy of Dancing Fleas. Penguin Cafe Orchestra is centered around a composer named Simon Jeffes. Their first release came out on Brian Eno's label. So they're like a group that kind of eludes genre. There's a little bit of classical music, a little bit of jazz, experimental, pop. 
got like fretless bass, it's got strings, it's got fingerpick guitar. This is a celebratory song to commemorate a real magical moment. They've asked me to select a song of my own to have played at the dinner party, and uh, that would be a little embarrassing. I would maybe be very self-conscious, but Rise Above, it's not that big of a deal. For that, I would choose a song from the new album. It's called Time Flies By. This song draws a little bit from the rhythms of Jobim. It's a pop bossa song. I, I didn't, I wasn't trying to make something that was mimicking bossa nova. It's more like if the Beatles were playing a bossa nova song or something. Ringo's not going to play that beat exactly like a Brazilian would. Dinner Party soundtrack courtesy of Andy Kabik. His band Vetiver will release their new album Complete Strangers on March 24th, and they go on tour in May. Love that song. All right, we're going to take a quick break, but prepare to meet some pretty cool people. Ethan Hawke, the Broad City Ladies, and David Duchovny are coming up when the Dinner Party download continues. Welcome back to the Dinner Party Download, the culture show that helps you win your dinner party. I'm Brendan Francis Noonan. I'm Rico Galliano. Later, David Duchovny tells you how to deploy wolves in polite conversation. And in a few minutes, we meet the best friends behind TV's Broad City. But first, let's meet our guest of honor. And this week, it's actor Ethan Hawke. You've been hearing his name a lot lately, thanks to his Oscar-nominated performance in the movie Boyhood. Of course. He also starred in Training Day and the Before Sunrise trilogy. But for his latest project, he got behind the camera to direct a documentary called Seymour, An Introduction. It's a quiet portrait of an accomplished concert pianist turned teacher named Seymour Bernstein and his philosophy on life and art. Hawk met Bernstein at a dinner party, and when we spoke, I asked him what his first impression was. How rare it is to meet someone in their mid-80s who seems to be full of so much joy. Uh, So often when you meet successful older people, they're so pompous (laughs) or they're bitter. And particularly in the arts, some of the most successful people I've met are some of the least successful human beings I've met. Hmm. Uh, I was 40 years old and I was looking at what the rest of my life was going to look like and there's this huge problem, which is that if you fail, you're going to be miserable. And if you succeed, you're going to be miserable. And so I was hypnotized by this person who was so buoyant. He does have this uh, beatific quality to him. And he preaches about, uh, doesn't preach at all, actually, but he talks about patience, concentration, practice, and devotion to your art. These are wonderful qualities that you get across in this portrait. But in a strange way, probably intimidating as a director. I mean, it's a pretty subtle thing you're trying to get across here. How did you confront that? You know, it's not like there's some central big D drama in the middle of this. No, I mean, I think that was the mystery for all of us. When you sit with Seymour, there's this subtle feeling that you get that life is worth living. 
and that everything is interesting, mm. you know? And there's something near religious about being near him, but what's so wonderful is that he doesn't espouse any religion. Or yeah. doesn't, he's, as, as you said, he really doesn't preach. He is monk-like, though. But his... he is monk-like, and he is dedicated, and we live in a, in a culture that is constantly, subtly supporting status. And it creates this feeling in all of us that I think that the point of life must be to win. Yeah. And there's something so refreshing about being around an intelligent 80-year-old person who respects themselves and respects you, who is full of joy, who says, guess what? There's no winning. <laughs> and it's this huge relief, I think. And that that was what I was getting after with him in these conversations. I saw you speak with Seymour about this film, and you were talking about the idea of, in America, often being a student ends at 21 when you're done with college. But in other traditions, like in the Buddhist tradition, there's this idea of being a lifelong student. Do you consider yourself maybe a student of Seymour? Or I, I do wish very much that it was easier in our adult life to have mentors. And in the theater has it a little bit with directors, but... So many directors now don't really know what they're talking about. I mean, there's not an apprenticeship even in that profession. Mm. But if you meet a director like Jack O'Brien, um, who directed me in Henry the Fourth and Macbeth and Tom Stoppard's Coast of Utopia, th- he's a guy in his 70s who is a man who has dedicated his life to studying the theatrical arts. And when you work with him, it's clear <laughs> that he, you, you know, it's, yeah. he really does have things to teach you. Yeah. Uh, He's directed this play seven times. And when he did it with Kevin Klein, he did it like this. When he did it with this other great actor, when he did it with this other great actor. And, sure. and so it's, there's all this stuff to learn. And, and for me, that's thrilling because a lot of times we get hit with these ideas that, you know, that's downhill from 25. <laughs> you know, that way well, you're not that's good looking not. anymore, so it's over. Yeah. You know, and a lot of our culture supports that, you know, we see it. We see all these people trying to stay 25. Yeah. And when you get to work with Tom Stoppard, you don't want to be 25. You want to be 80, (laughs) you you know? And just getting yourself in that framework and that mindset, I I think that's part of what I enjoyed about being around Seymour and making the doc. Um, All right, so I would need to transition to our two standard questions here. Okay, please Uh, do. The first one is, what question are you tired of being asked in interviews? Even the whole conceit of that question is... The one I'm most tired of being asked. Okay. Um, because <laughs> I'll take it. Because the, it operates on this uh, precept that being interviewed is a drag. And how I've come to feel about it is that it's such a gift that anybody would care enough to ask me any question. It's, it's something that Richard Linklater and I, I on, it really happened to me on Before Sunset. We were on set, and we kind of couldn't believe anybody giving us the money to make a sequel to a movie that didn't make any money. And the whole time we made the movie, we had this overwhelming sense of gratitude, like the plug was going to get pulled any minute. Yeah. Like, I mean, literally, it was the, <laughs> Before Sunset is the lowest, I mean, Before Sunrise is the lowest grossing film to ever garnish a sequel but in a the cult- history of cinema. But a cult hit. People but love it, it. Yeah, yeah, but but we never made anybody any money. <laughs> and and so we had this huge sense of gratitude. And I remember thinking, I'm never going to let this go. Whenever I'm on set, I want to accept jobs and I want to do things that create, make me feel this way. Yeah. And the fact that I'm on a talk show where we're actually talking about, like, a life in the arts, I I feel so grateful. So I don't want to say I like that, it. So you're the first person. And even in this, you found a meta answer. We've had 
hundreds Good. of guests. Good. Well, I, I looked for it and I found it. <laughs> and your, and your <laughs> answer is, is what question are you tired of being asked? I'm tired that of being one. asked. What question are you tired uh, of being yeah. asked? Yeah. <laughs> um, okay. Well, our second question is, is, is different. I don't think you can be tired of this, okay. which is tell us something we don't know. And this can be a fact about you or it can be just kind of an interesting piece of trivia about the world. Well, the first thing that pops into my mind is for years I've been working on the text to a graphic novel. Um, okay. Trying to tell the story of the last free Native Americans, um, Geronimo, Natchez, and Cochise, the, the Apaches. And I think a lot of people, some people know this, but a lot of people don't know that Geronimo wasn't a chief, that he served. I didn't know that. He served the chief Natchez. And what even less people know is that one of the real true leaders of that last free band of Chiricahua was a woman named Lozen. And Lozen is a great uh, kind of feminist role model because not only was she a great warrior, but a great leader Hmm. and a great healer. Forget Pocahontas, Lozen. Yeah, because she, you know, Lozen wasn't anybody's uh, lover, <laughs> yeah. girlfriend, or something like this. She was a leader yeah. and, um, and pretty and, ferocious. In fact, she has a great thing that she said her uh, brother wanted her to leave this battle so that she would live. And she said, No, when they kill you, I want to eat your body so they don't even get to touch you. These people don't deserve to touch you. Ethan Hawke, his new documentary Seymour and Introduction opens in select theaters this weekend. And for a taste of the film, head to our website where you can watch the preview and clips of Seymour performing. It's all at dinnerpartydownload.org. And now, the guest list, in which interesting people list interesting things. Yes, and our guests are Ilana Glazer and Abby Jacobson, the creators and stars of Broad City, a very funny show about two young women navigating a surreal New York City. The second season finale hits this week. Here they are with their list. Hey, audience. Hello, hello, hello. I am Abby Jacobson. And I am Ilana Glazer. We are... Friends, obviously, and we uh, started this show, Broad City, um, because our friendship had an interesting dynamic, and we're here to talk about friends. Friends are inspiring. Friendships are inspiring to friendships. Yeah, we're like, which, what kind of friends do we like to watch? So here's our list of our favorite friends. I'm going to start this off with a TV program, Kate and Allie. Ooh, Kate and Allie. So Kate and Allie was on in maybe the late 80s. This was about two friends who found themselves both with kids and single and decided to their families to just live together. Anything in that article about how to get the lint off of raw fish? No. It's about the territorial imperative. What's that? About, you know, when a woman moves her things into a man's apartment, it's threatening for him. Oh, I get it. You move your toothbrush in bristle by bristle, then in two years you can brush your teeth. Do you think only men feel that way? Of course. You moved in here a long time ago. You don't see me flipping out. They were always rushing. They would leave, and then they had to, like, rush back into the house because they, like, forgot stuff, struggling and hustling and just trying to figure it out. (laughs) Hi, gang. Great. Right on schedule. Emma, get your coat. I've got a cab waiting outside. I've been thinking, oh, boy, when I get some time, I think I'll do that. And I feel like that's a lot like our show. Broad City is not that serious. To have kids is a serious thing. But talk about a friendship. We're going to raise our kids together. Yeah. I love the idea of a marriage among women. It's kind of like a sexless marriage. Yeah, I was just yeah. going to say, like, women can get married, though. But that this it is just a different... Wasn't a, it was just a friendship. Like ours. 
The next pair on the list is Mr. Joey Tribbiani and Mr. Chandler Bing. Chandler Bing and Joey Tribbiani are two out of the six roommates on the show Friends. Just such bros, but like sensitive bros. I was just going to say sensitive bros. Um, I think at one point they owned a chicken and a duck. Oh, that was cute. Hey, can I get you something? Okay. It's a chicken. <laughs> it's cute, huh? Whoa, 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 you guys, do you know anything about chicks? Fowl? No. Women? No. People are like... Who would you guys compare your dynamic to? And we often compare it to them because it is like... It's not like a choice. Let's pick the boys in Friends. We discovered it and we're like, oh my God, we are Chandler and Joey. Yeah. Alana does this thing sometimes in real life and on the show where we'll be talking about something and she'll just be like staring. It's clear that she like doesn't get it. And then a minute will pass or whatever. And then she'll be like, oh. Oh my God, that's And right. it is a thing that Joey does. Yeah. I'm a smart person, but a average to below average speed processor. I'll say this one and we can decide if this is a good one or not. Uh Uh-uh. Milo and Otis. Oh my God. Classic movie from my childhood. I owned it on VHS. Hell yeah, me too. It is a friendship between a teeny bug puppy and a cat. They got lost. They got separated from their owners. So it's a sentimental story about these two friends trying to get home. But you know how, like, car insurance commercials will have babies or animals have CGI animated mouths? And it's like, hey, I'm Bub, or whatever. Milo and Otis just had voiceover, and they were just regular animals. You're a strange-looking cat, Milo said. Oh, I'm not a cat. I'm a dog, Otis replied. Milo tried to figure this out and said, all, all right, a dog, I understand, but um, really, deep down inside, we're all cats, right? Dude, Milo and Otis is classic. You know that that makes you the cat, though. I'll take it. Cats are hot. Because I have to be the pug. You do have to be a little pug. Wait, so I would be Otis, right? One of them, like, doesn't one die? I mean, they're on a great journey. Abby Jacobson and Alana Glazer, stars and creators of the show Broad City. The season finale airs this week on Comedy Central. See it. And now, Bread City. I, I've been waiting for that. Yeah, I guess that means it's time for the main course. Mm-hmm. This is the part of the show where we talk about food. You are astute. Uh, so, Brendan, apologies to our gluten-free listeners, but the food I most often crave is a good piece of bread with some butter on this it. This is completely understandable. It's very simple. So, imagine my delight... When I learned one of the baking industry's top trade magazines just named a guy in my neighborhood one of the 10 best bread bakers in the country. Mm. His name is Mark Stambler, and in his home kitchen, he painstakingly crafts French breads that are served by some of L.A.'s top restaurants. So to learn about bread making, I met him in his backyard where he was baking some in a brick oven. I first asked how he got into bread. Well, my mom was not a professional baker, but she was a patisserie. She came over from Germany, and so she knew how to bake a wide variety of pastries and cakes, but she would never, ever bake bread. So I decided it would kind of be like my mom, but kind of different. So I only baked bread. I would never bake pastry. It was like your youthful rebellion. But as the son of uh, somebody who was doing complicated baked goods, how can you stay interested in this kind of the most basic of foods? Well, that's exactly the reason. It is the most basic food, and it's probably one of the 
oldest prepared foods and the fact that it's just got essentially three ingredients, uh, four if you count salt, but basically there's grain, there's water, and yeast. And the process of making dough for bread is just cultivating the yeast in flour and water. It's the yeast's food. As yeast grows, it emits gas, which uh, expands the dough, and it makes sugar, it makes alcohol. Unfortunately, the alcohol burns off in the baking, but... That's so sad. It, <laughs> what a waste. <laughs> but it does, it just takes years of practice, and in my case, a lot of trial and error to sort of get it right. If you were to give somebody one thing to make their bread great, what would it be? What's the most important thing? <sighs> G1, it's use a starter rather than commercial yeast. What's the difference? Well, commercial yeast is sort of the dried yeast you buy in a store. It's just prepared yeast. And if, on the other hand, you just have access to a starter, and all a starter is is flour and water that's been mixed together and let stand out so that yeast can settle on it and start to grow. If you use that instead of the commercial yeast, the flavor of your bread will improve remarkably, particularly if you have whole grain in your bread. White bread, well... It should be demonized. <laughs> the, the look of disdain on your face right now is tremendous for something that everybody eats all the time. I, I, yeah, but only because people really haven't been introduced to, uh, to whole grain breads. Well, let's do that right now. Absolutely. I can smell this bread that you're baking right now. It smells fantastic. Tell us what is in the oven. I, I bake three different kinds of bread. I do a pan levain, sort of the traditional French loaf, one of them that you'll find out in the countryside, but I'm trying to duplicate the kind of flour that the French normally use wherever. I mean, and it's true, you mill your own flour, is that right? I do, I mill my own whole grain flour. I have a little stone mill and I just throw the whole grain in there and I bake with it almost immediately, within you know an hour or so of milling. So you do the pen levain, that's kind of a torpedo shape. It's not, it's not like a baguette, but it's like no, a fat no, torpedo no, of bread. No, no. The thing is that baguette's not a traditional French bread. The baguette really was introduced only about a century ago by the Viennese. <gasps> Sacre bleu. <laughs> exactly. Paris loved this bread that came from the Austrians. And so everyone else in France said, oh, my God, the Parisians really love this stuff. I guess we better like it, too. But you're not going to stain your hands with that non-actual French baguette. So you've got the pan levain and what pan else? Pan and my miche, which in Europe is usually shaped as a big round. I mean, it's usually a couple of kilos. These things are huge. But people are not going to buy loaves of bread that big. So I make small one, mini miche. And that's a round bread, right? It's a round bread, exactly. And I also do a sourdough rye. And when I first started working with rye, I said, what is this horrible stuff? It looks awful. It smells bad. But it makes great bread. Well, as I said, it smells unbelievable. Should we go over there? Uh, apparently, you keep glancing over there yeah, like you're yeah. very panicky because exactly. it's about to come out. That's the time. It's time to take it out. The bread... Doesn't wait once it's in the oven. What is this? What kind of bread? What we're offloading here is the miche. And the miche, I understand from Bon Appetit, is the it loaf of the season. You are now spraying steam, like spraying water, I guess, into the directly into the oven. Exactly. So it's a Hudson sprayer I'm using here. What does that do, spritzing them? Uh, cools down the crust so that the interior of it can actually bake a little longer and give a bit more oven spring to it. Which, oven spring? Oh. <laughs> Speak English, man. Oh, sorry. Oven spring is the way the loaf expands considerably when you put it in the oven if all the conditions are right. 
what causes dough to rise is heat. The yeast loves it. They're just having a wonderful time. They say, oh, you know, we're producing a lot of gas for you. We're you know, doing all this stuff, but it's a little too hot. Oh, my God, we're all dead. <laughs> That's the point where it stops rising. After all, the yeast is dead. So basically, the process of making bread is getting yeast lively and happy and then kill it. Essentially, yeah. You're a murderer. No, I'm a vegetarian. L.A. baker Mark Stambler. Uh, firstly, I consumed half a loaf of his sourdough rye on the way home from that interview. Understandable. Plain. Secondly, I should note that an Austrian did bring to France the ovens used to make baguettes, but it is not clear whether baguettes themselves are Austrian. All right. All right. So French people do not write in angry. Please. Yeah. And speaking of acting nicely, stick around. David Duchovny is going to be here to answer etiquette questions. This is the Dinner Party Download. Welcome back to the Dinner Party Download, the show that gives you an edge in your weekend conversations. I'm Rico Galliano. I'm Brendan Francis Noonan. Later, we'll hear a brand new song from Jenny Vall. And coming up, journalist Mark Adams tells us about his globetrotting search for the lost city of Atlantis. But first, we search for answers to your problems. By which I mean, of course, it's time for our weekly etiquette lesson. Yes, each week you send in your questions about how to behave. And here to answer them this week is actor David Duchovny. He played Detective Fox Mulder in the cult sci-fi TV series The X-Files. And he also starred as the womanizing novelist Hank Moody in the long-running Showtime show Californication. But before all that, he was, like many of us in public radio land, an English major. My brother. He got his B.A. at Princeton, <laughs> where his senior thesis was the schizophrenic critique of pure reason in Beckett's early novels. Oof, wow. Yeah, wow, I was right. I know. Jeez. So he has all the qualifications to have now published his first book. It's called Holy Cow. And obviously, it is filled with anthropomorphized animals, puns, and reflections on tolerance and the sex lives of bovines. David, mm. welcome. Thank you. That's uh, my favorite intro of all time. Glad you think so. We aim to please. I was an English major, too. <laughs> so this book is narrated by Elsie Bovary, a cow, mm -hmm. and she and a pig named Shalom and a turkey named Tom decide to break out of their farm and head to countries where they think they'll be more safe. In Elsie's case, it's India, where she's heard that cows are worshipped. Yeah, at one point they end up trekking through the deserts of the Middle East. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Our question, where the hell did you come up with this idea? <laughs> Well, I was just, I was driving in Los Angeles. This was a long time ago uh, yeah. when I still lived there. And it, start, it started with, you know. It was like, you know, it was one of those thoughts. You know, you know, if I were a cow, I'd probably try to get to India. That's how it, that, that's, that struck me as inevitable. So then I, I thought, well, this is a story. It felt like an animated film, but, you know, is there any more? Are there other animals? And I kind of went through the... The kosher list, and I uh, thought that a pig was probably more dramatic than a shrimp or a clam. Yeah, I think so. Good work. <laughs> I would I love I, to see an animated clam cartoon. A, a clam uh, trekking through the desert would have been uh, interesting, using his one little leg there. To There's so much move. tension that it needs water, <laughs> exactly. and it's in the desert. Anyway, continue. And then it, uh, just the turkey was, uh, oh, turkey, that's funny. Turkey might think turkey was a place where it could be safe. So I thought it was an animated film. Mm -hmm. So I went and I pitched it. Pixar and Disney, I think, were the two places I pitched it. And they both passed uh, politely. I think they were scared off by uh, 
uh, circumcising a pig. <laughs> but now, now if this is a big hit, then you can have your revenge when they buy the film rights. Now, now who doesn't want to circumcise a pig? All right, yeah. Exactly. Now everybody's doing it. Fingers crossed. Meanwhile, here you are to answer etiquette questions. You ready for these? We told folks you would be here. Sure. Let's begin. Our first question comes from Sarah in Silver Lake, California. And Sarah writes, How do you politely end a conversation when you're in a rush to leave but the other person is in the middle of what they're saying. Mm. The person can tell them anxious to go, but it seems rude to just cut them off. Mm. Oh, I know this feeling. Yeah, we used to do this thing on set where, uh, you know, if, if you were in that position, I forget where it came from. It might have come from a movie, but you go, oh, look, a baby wolf. And then you just run? <laughs> yeah. When the person every, turns to look at the baby wolf? Well, everybody understands that if you saw a baby wolf, you'd, you'd end the conversation to go look at it. <laughs> Certainly. You know? what, what set was that, by the way? That feels like an X-Files set moment. I think it was X-Files. Oh, oh look, a baby wolf. <laughs> yeah, where that actually could have happened on that set. Yeah, I'll get back <laughs> to you later. I just got to check the baby wolf out. <laughs> All, All right. right, that's great so, advice. So, Sarah, your friends may think you're on drugs, but you'll be able to end the conversation and not feel uncomfortable. That's right. Mm-hmm. Perfect advice. Here's something from Morteza in Tehran, Iran. And Morteza writes, a longtime dear friend of mine asked me to help him with his English so he can take an English proficiency test. I thought this would take a couple of weeks at most, but it's turned out to be three months so far. Is there a not blunt way to tell him the amount of time I'm putting into this would only be reasonable if I was getting paid? It's not like I need the money, but that would give me motivation and won't make me feel like I'm wasting my time. You know what? It, next time they get together, uh, she should say, "Oh, look, a baby wolf," <laughs> and then and then never come back. You know, go running off, change your Wait, number. Should she say that in English or Persian? In Persian. Okay. Oh, okay. Because he'll understand it because he hasn't gotten advanced enough to be able to understand. No, the he English. doesn't know. Look, a baby wolf in English. It is true. No, I don't know. I, I I would just God. I'm always. It's easy to say. Just be straightforward, but. Obviously, people have difficulty doing it. But also, you know what else is going on here? Morteza might not be a very good teacher, right? (laughs) That's That's why it's taking so long. Yeah, it would take a couple weeks, but now it's three months. It's like, I don't know, Morteza. Yeah, you strung this guy along, now you want to be paid? I don't know. I mean, her her English in that question was was very good. That's true. That's a good point. But she just may not be good at transferring that knowledge to others, is what I'm saying. She may not be a good teacher. (laughs) All right, so we went from helping Morteza to questioning her (laughs) teaching ability. Well, David says that she should just ask the guy if he can pay her. I think that it's too late. I think that she should have said that up front. That's true. You're tougher than I am. Well, clearly. All right. So we have another question. Uh, This one comes from Krista. She sent it via Facebook, and she asks, Mm -hmm. what's the best way to sing the popular song, David Duchovny, to David Duchovny, Mm Or mm-hmm. how does one react to a song that's been written about you? Actually, before you answer this, we should listen to a clip of this song. Oh, I love that song. Oh, that was so good to hear it. Um, <laughs> What do you mean, what is the best way to hear it? Well, her first question, what's the best way to sing the popular song to you? If you were being serenaded, oh, would you, I guess, oh, would you me. want a lute? Would you want a piano? Would you <laughs> mm. not want it at all? Um, probably not want it at all, you know. <laughs> yeah. But uh, I had a book reading here in New York about a month ago, and on my way in, I got an email from Bree Sharp, who is the woman that wrote and sang that song. Yes. And she said, oh, I see you've got a book. Uh, it's, I'm in the neighborhood, but I'm not going to be able to make it by, or maybe I will. And I said, well, 
If you do, bring your guitar and I'll make you sing the song. Oh, I see. Ah. So she showed up with the guitar and she sang it just to her and the guitar and, and it was really nice. All right. Okay, so be Bree Sharp and bring a guitar to your book reading and sing it to you there exactly. upon your request. Yeah, if you can. That's how you do if it. If you can do those things. <laughs> but if, if you're not those things, then then don't. Then don't sing it to me. Then how does one react to a song? This, how did you react when you found out there was a song written about you? Oh, I was, I was, I was, it was, it was really nice. I mean, a friend of mine had found it and uh, I had no idea that my name rhymed with so many uh, interesting <laughs> phrases. I, 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 re- I really had never thought of it that way. I, I'd always assumed yeah. my name was like orange and it was impossible to rhyme with anything. You're wrong. But I am very wrong. So I started playing it in my car and, you know, I'd kind of rock out to it. And a couple times I realized my windows were down. And that was, <laughs> I was going to say. That's, I was pretty, say. <laughs> that's pretty rock star of you. Pretty, pretty I, stupid. I could see you in traffic on PCH. Exactly. <laughs> rocking out to a song about you. It was PCH. That is the ultimate Malibu movie star moment. I know. I know. Thankfully, <laughs> thankfully, no one busted me. Oh, man. <laughs> David Duchovny, thank you for telling us how not to behave if a song is written about you. Don't ever do that. All right. Thanks so much for being here, sir. Thank you. David Duchovny, his book, Holy Cow, is filled with more puns Woo. than this show. He really milks them for all they're worth. Oh, my God. Yeah. You can find out more about it at our website. The address is dinnerpartydownload.org. That's also where you can see the video for the song, David Duchovny. And while you're there, email us your etiquette questions. Just click the link that says contact. And now, time for Chattering Class, in which we are schooled by an expert in a party-worthy topic. The topic this week, The Lost City of Atlantis. And our guest is Mark Adams. He has written for GQ, The New York Times, many more. He wrote the bestseller Turn Right at Machu Picchu, which Men's Journal named one of the 50 greatest adventure books ever. His new book, Meet Me in Atlantis, chronicles his adventures with modern-day Atlantis seekers. Mark, welcome. Thank you for having me. Thanks for coming. So for those who are only kind of dimly aware of the concept of Atlantis, can you give the quick elevator pitch of what believers say it was? Well, the, the general pop culture version of Atlantis is this sophisticated island civilization that suddenly sank beneath the waves in a day and a night. That's the Disney version. And this was centuries ago. This is supposedly, uh, yeah, long before uh, recorded history. Now, I think, first of all, many people would be surprised to learn, though, that Atlantis is not part of ancient Greek religious mythology or something. It was written about first by Plato. It was. That's what first attracted me to the story. You have this Atlantis tale, which is usually grouped with, you know, Bigfoot, UFOs, crop circles. And then you have Plato, arguably the greatest thinker in Western civilization history. And he's the sole source for the Atlantis story. Not known as a crackpot, Plato. No. But the, but the big question among the people that you speak to is whether Plato was just making Atlantis up to make a rhetorical point or actually passing on information about a real place he'd been told about by his forefathers. Explain the evidence of each of these things. Well, the thing about Plato's story is he gives all this incredible detail. You know, he talks about landmarks that can almost but not quite be identified. He talks about building materials. He talks about the island's, you know, position relative to a land called Gades. And there's so much detail in there, including numbers, all sorts of numbers. You can't help but start to wonder, was he telling the truth about this? I mean, it, it's almost like he's giving GPS coordinates from, from the distant <laughs> past. 
And what has happened over time is you've got academia, which treats Atlantis pretty much like kryptonite. Nobody wants to touch it with a 10-foot pole. They every, don't want to believe it's real. They're, well, every email I sent off to uh, an email address ending in EDU, I had about a two in three chance that no one would ever get back to me. <laughs> of course. The A word is untouchable. On the other hand, you've got all these amateur researchers who see all this detail and they say, oh my God, this is essentially a treasure map. And we're going to use all of these clues to try to solve the greatest mystery of antiquity. Now, I I have to say, the former seems more likely. There was not this mythical, wonderful city centuries ago that has magically disappeared. But then you know that people have actually used old tales to find actual evidence of mythical places. Exactly. You know, myths were treated as purely as fiction up until the middle of the 19th century when there was a... German named uh, Schliemann, who took Homer's Iliad to find the city of Troy in Turkey. And after that, it was like all bets were off. People started looking for Atlantis almost immediately. Who was the first? There was a sort of crackpot Minnesota congressman, ex-congressman named Ignatius Donnelly. He took every scrap of ancient evidence he could find and cobbled it together into this Atlantis theory and used some of the brand new science. They were doing the first deep readings of the ocean at that time. And he said, oh, you know what? The Azores, the islands in the middle of the Atlantic, those are actually the tops of the mountains that were in Atlantis. Mm -hmm. Atlantis sank to the bottom of the Atlantic Ocean, and that's why so many people believe that is the case today. By the way, in the chapter that you write about Ignatius, there's a quote from his book about Atlantis where he hypothesizes that the people of Atlantis sailed away to form, quote, the Indo-European family of nations and the Semitic peoples. I am part Jewish, so does that mean that I am part Atlantean, perhaps? I would say the chances (laughs) that you are part Atlantean are roughly 98%. (laughs) Amazing. If not higher. My life is different now. Well, he he takes that a little bit further, if I may add. He says that the fact that actuarial tables show that Jews live longer show that the Atlanteans were the super race. Wow. Now I feel really great about myself. See? Well, you might live forever. But, you know, as crackpot as that stuff sounds... You spend a lot of the book exploring the more likely places that people have posited that Atlantis could have existed. Which did you find the most compelling? Perhaps the dark horse candidate, which a lot of people have latched onto, is I met this IT specialist from Bonn, Germany, um, who took every detail from Plato's story and plugged it into what he calls hierarchical constraint satisfaction, a sort of statistical modeling. Sounds good. As he put it, he, he said, you know perhaps the Six Sigma? This is seven sigma, 99.99999% real. Accurate. Okay, man. (laughs) Yeah. Well, you start the book with this guy. You seem to really want to believe him above all of these folks. What, how did it turn out? Well, the thing is, when you're in the presence of these people, they're all mesmerizing. Every theory sounds like it's totally true when you're in the presence of the person. And this is largely a travel book as well. I go to every one of these sites and I spend some time in Athens and I go to Ireland to meet the world's greatest amateur Atlantologist. Yeah, I have to say Um, that when you list the places that Atlantis could possibly be, I'm like, that's a pretty good gig you just made for yourself, Mark. (laughs) You get to go to Morocco and Spain. It was not not a factor, let's put it that way. (laughs) But the, the thing about Michael Hubner, he's the IT guy. The thing about his theory is that, you know, Michael Hubner is is choosing his own data that he wants to put in. So it's a, well, okay, this is kind of, you know, a self-fulfilling prophecy. Sure, confirmation bias. Uh, Last question. The rock song 
Atlantis by Donovan, <laughs> which starts with Donovan reciting this long, almost spinal tap-like history yep. of Atlantis. Is there anything remotely accurate about that? You know what? He might as well be reading that straight out of Ignatius Donnelly's book. Really? All that kooky stuff, yeah. You know, they all got in their ships and they went to far <laughs> lands and started the master race. You know, I, I've done a few interviews for this book over the last couple of days, and do you know how many times I've heard the sound of Donovan's Atlantis as the <laughs> intro? <laughs> If you're going to dub it in, please do it after I leave. That's all I ask. Journalist and author Mark Adams, his new book is called Meet Me in Atlantis, My Obsessive Quest to Find the Sunken City. As you can hear, we chose not to annoy Mark further by playing the obvious outro music. But if you are first to name the aptly titled tune we are playing, we'll send you a little something. We don't know what yet, but we will. Yes. Email your guest to dinnerparty at americanpublicmedia.org. And that's the Dinner Party download for this week, folks. But do not despair. This radio show is also a podcast. In fact, that's how we started. Mm-hmm. You can listen to past shows and hear super special podcast-only episodes on iTunes. And while you're there, please post a love note. A.K.A. a review. Next week on the show, actor Zachary Quinto stops by. Plus, we chat with neo-soul musician Leon Bridges. It's going to be a good one. Till then, please know Jackson Musker produces the Dinner Party Download. Christina Lopez is our associate digital producer. Our interns are Christiana Cabal and Ed Morales. Engineering assistance this week came from Daniel Ramirez, Chris Clark and Charlton Thorpe. Peter Clowney is our executive producer. And now, before we leave you, it's time for One for the Road, a song to enjoy on your way to or returning from this week's dinner parties. It comes courtesy of the Norwegian musician Jenny Vall. She has a new album coming out in June called Apocalypse Girl. Here's the first track from it called That Battle is Over. Bon appétit. What are we taking care of? Thanks for attending the Dinner Party Download. I'm Rico Galliano. And I'm Brendan Francis Newnham. Thanks for listening. Dude, our show is really good. We are pretty amazing. Hey, are you, are you Brendan and Rico from Dinner Party Download? Uh, quick, roll up the window. <laughs> Were you guys grooving to yourselves on the radio just now? Roll up the window. I'm trying.